Welcome to the Rainmaker Fundraising Podcast, where you'll get actionable tips and advice on major gifts, direct response fundraising, legacy giving, and much more from leading experts in the nonprofit sector. Now, here are your hosts of the Rainmaker Fundraising Podcast, Andrew Olson and Roy Jones. Hey, everyone. This is Andrew Olson with the Rainmaker Fundraising Podcast. Uh, Welcome to the show today. I am so excited to have my good friend and colleague, Jeff Rothman, with us. Jeff is the founder and president of Rothman Talent Solutions. Jeff, how are you today? I'm doing great, Andrew. Thanks for having me on. Hey, man, super excited to have you here. Full disclosure, Jeff and I know each other more than just as industry colleagues, as uh, Jeff actually helped recruit me to Newport One, and I am uh, super grateful for that. And uh, just you know, glad to have you on and glad to talk with you about the chapter that you contributed to my newest book, uh, 101 Biggest Mistakes Nonprofits Make and How You Can Avoid Them. Before we get into that, I'd love for you to, to tell us a little bit about who you are and your firm. Sure. Well, Rothman Talent Solutions uh, has been around for uh, a little over 20 years at this point. And from day one, our practice is focused on direct response marketing. I've been in the recruiting industry for about 30 years in total. But when I when I started this business back in 1998, I guess it was, I decided I wanted to focus on the direct marketing industry because I had some experience there from earlier in my career. And just so happened that the first placement I made was with a very well-known fundraising agency in D.C. So that kind of kicked off my, you know, the part of my practice that's focused on the nonprofit fundraising sector, the direct response fundraising sector. In fact, the agency that I placed this person at was one that right after I got out of college, I was doing part-time work at a fundraising agency in DC in the evenings where a bunch of people would would sit down in the room, they'd give us those big white, you know, those old big white computer printouts Mm -hmm with the names and contact information of people they needed to reactivate for their clients. It happens to be the same agency I made that first place. Oh, wow. Yeah. And that goes back a way to think about the pin fed, you know, computer paper. uh, uh, Man, that's a long time ago. That's a long time ago. (laughs) Unfortunately, you dates me in a way I prefer (laughs) not people to know about, but what the heck. That's awesome. So what percentage of the work that you do is focused on nonprofit direct response at this point? It, it varies, but I'd say these days it's been the majority of the work that I do. Okay. It's been, you know, there have been years when it's been very little and then, uh, but recently it's kind of settled in at about 50-50. The other part of my work is on the commercial side of uh, the direct response industry with what I now refer to as the data-driven marketing ecosystem. Okay. You recruit for both agencies, but also directly into nonprofits and corporations, right? Yes. Okay. Yeah, but on the commercial side, it's primarily with the supply chain. Oh, so okay. the, the direct mail companies, the printers, the data strategy companies, marketing technology companies. Okay. And mostly people who were in sales and other client-facing roles. Gotcha. Okay. So I want to jump into some questions. You authored a great chapter in my newest book, and it was all about the hiring and talent management, talent development mistakes that that we make in the nonprofit uh, industry. And I want to start in and get your insight. So one of the first things that you highlighted is the idea of of organizations not being 
candidate centric in their recruiting and, and talent management. What do you mean by that and why is that important? So we're in a really tough talent market right now. Everybody knows how low the unemployment rate is. And usually in the professional and managerial sector, it's even lower. So it's tough to find great talent. And what companies, what organizations, nonprofits need to realize now is that we're not in a talent surplus environment. We're in a talent scarcity environment. And you can't keep recruiting, can't keep trying to attract people with a talent surplus mindset. So in order to adapt to what the current talent market conditions are and what I think they're likely to be for many, many years to come because of the way demographics are working now, you need to rethink how you engage with candidates. And being candidate-centric means that you're focusing on how you position yourself with prospective job seekers and even your own employees. So that you can be more focused on, be more explicit about what you can do to advance their career interests and their aspirations, as opposed to what what they can do for you, which is important. But when you're out recruiting now, you need to rethink how you're approaching people and how you're positioning yourselves. It's a lot like fundraising. When you're raising money, you're not just going out and saying, well, we need this money because. You're saying, with the money you donate to us, here's how it impacts you or can make a difference in your life. You know, you're, you're making an emotional appeal to somebody. You're, uh, you're appealing to them at a, at a different level. And that's what it takes to get people interested these days in coming to work for you. So that's, that's really interesting because I, I feel like so often, it, especially in the nonprofit sector, we hear things like, well, our mission is what needs to drive things. And if they resonate with our mission, they'll want to come here. But what I hear you saying is, there's, there's such a shortage of great talent that the, the organizations that really want to be competitive have to kind of turn that approach on its head. Yes, I, I believe that to be the case. That's not to say that people won't join a nonprofit because they're in sync with the mission, but they're going to be in sync with organizations, uh, with other organizations and other missions, and they're also competing. Nonprofits are competing with the commercial sector for talent. That's a great point. So you got to be smart about how you do this. Okay, thank you. All right, so another mistake that you call out in your chapter is relying too much on active job seekers. Why is that a problem? Well, first of all, let's define what an active job seeker is as opposed to what in the recruiting industry we call a passive job seeker. Okay, great. So an active job seeker is somebody who is actively uh, applying for jobs, actively looking. Okay, so if you put a posting up on LinkedIn or Indeed or, or Idealist, they're looking on a regular basis and applying for those jobs. A passive job seeker is somebody who is willing to make a change for the right opportunity, but only if you approach them and give them a reason to listen and make a good case for why that opportunity might be valuable to them from a career standpoint. Okay. Okay. So we need to understand that first. Now, active job seekers 
constitute a minority of the talent pool. Hmm. Most of the studies I've seen say that passive job seekers are anywhere from 70 to 80% of the total talent pool. That wow. doesn't mean that all those people are going to make a change. They're just the people who aren't actively looking. A percentage of those people are going to be high quality, top performers who will make a change for the right opportunity. But if you don't approach them, they're never going to know about you. So if you rely too heavily on the active job seekers, you're cutting yourself off from a very important and very valuable segment of the talent pool. Okay. The challenge is that they're, that it's really hard to recruit them. It's hard to get to them. It's hard to figure out who they are. It's very time consuming. And most organizations, most employers kind of throw up their hands and say, I will just put a posting up. Hmm. So do you see any significant differences in the quality of talent between people who you classify as active job seekers versus passive job seekers? Well, in my industry, you will hear uh, you will hear people say that passive job seekers that that segment comprises uh, uh, a higher percentage of top quality, high impact people than in the active job seeker pool. I I think there is truth to that. I don't think it's. I mean, there are lots of really good people who are actively looking for a new job. Okay. So I don't, I don't like to put a lot of emphasis on that because I feel like I'm being disrespectful of the people who are actively looking. But either way, I think it's, it's really important not to ignore the passive job seeker side because if you want to go out, if you want to hire the best possible person for an open position that you have in your firm and you're not looking at the entire talent pool, then you're likely missing out on some really good people. And if you're if they're included in your talent pool, in your talent pipeline, and you're interviewing them alongside the active job seekers, you can only have more confidence that you're hiring the best possible person. Somebody who, you know, instead of hiring the best person who is on the market, you're hiring the best person who is in the market. Hmm. Makes sense? Really point. Yeah, it makes total sense. So uh, this next one I thought was really interesting because I don't know that I've ever thought about it myself from, from any of the agencies I've worked in or organizations, but you talk about the idea of uh, one of the mistakes being that an organization doesn't have a compelling employer brand. Yes. Um, and so talk to us about why that's important and what constitutes a good employer brand. An employer brand is an employer's value proposition as it pertains to prospective uh, employees. It encompasses the organization's mission, and values, and culture, its personality, and, and paints a picture, if it's done well, of why that organization or that company is a great place to work. Okay. So it goes along with what we talked earlier about what you need to, be, to do in today's talent market in order to attract good people. It's the story that you tell about your company. And it's something that needs to be part of, you know, that story needs to become part of the culture of that organization so that it permeates the entire organization and every step of the hiring process. So am I correct in assuming that 
that that's not just about what the employer puts out corporately in their messaging, but it's, it's also, and maybe even more importantly, what the people inside their organization say, what their clients might say. And also, you know, if, if I'm a job seeker or you've reached me and, and I'm a passive job seeker, what I might find on a site like Glassdoor if I look up that organization? Yes, exactly. Okay. That exactly. It encompasses all those things. Every organization has to find themselves in a particular way. What I'm suggesting is that you have to have that kind of positioning with the talent market as well. You have to be known not just among your stakeholders and the public as being a certain kind of organization, but you have to be known as a certain kind of employer so that people will be attracted to come and work for you. Okay, that makes good sense. So in the same way that a commercial brand uses their, their brand platform to create preference for consumers, you're, you're saying if you really want to be competitive in the talent space, you've got to do the same thing. Exactly. Great. Okay. So in the next section, you talk about confusing job postings with position descriptions. Mm-hmm. Tell me about that. This is one of my biggest pet peeves. Okay. They are not one and the same. And they're not interchangeable. What an organization's job descriptions are legal documents. They are, the HR prepares them in conjunction with management in order to have a formal description of what a role is, of you know, what, that, what someone in that role will be responsible for and what kind of background they should have for that role. But when you go out to recruit, well, it, let me back up for a minute. Typically, those job descriptions are long and very detailed and contain a lot of legalese. And frankly, when, when organizations go out to hire, they don't sit there and go down the list of requirements in the job description. Hiring managers are typically looking for people who can solve the problems that they have right now. Yep. <laughs> and those aren't always captured in that document. Now, a job posting is a job advertisement. It's not a legal document. It's not a laundry list of here's what you're going to do. And, you know, here are the, you know, the 10, 15, 20 things we're looking for in your background. It is an advertisement that is meant to attract people. So it needs to be, you know, you, you need to connect with your audience and you need to answer the question, what's in it for me, for the candidate creates some excitement, you know, ties back to that branding that we just talked about. So if you look online, there, there are, um, you know, in the research I did for the book, I, 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 I went on to some of the job boards like LinkedIn and I tried to find some examples of what I thought were great job descriptions or great job postings. <laughs> I, I don't want to confuse them. I'll confuse everybody if I do that. And if you don't mind, I can mention one of them or yeah. one, one company that I think does a great job, which is M&R Strategic. Sure. Um, yeah. I'm not saying their, their full name correctly, but they, they do – they do a great job. And if anybody goes online and looks at their website, I think it's MRSS. So it's MNR Strategic Solutions. It is. It's MRSS.com. 
Yep. You'll find, and you go to their, um, you know, the career segment of their website, or you look on LinkedIn. They they just do a great job. They, those job ads have personality, and mm -hmm. they communicate what it's going to be like to work there in a way that a job description will never do. For sure. Yeah. That's really interesting. I, it, it's so much more about the the sales process. It sounds like in the the recruitment ad, and really the the core competencies. Let's say that you need to be successful in the role. Is that do I capture that correctly? Yeah, you want people to to get interest. First thing you need to do is get people interested in the in the job, and you don't want them to rule themselves out because you've put a long list of requirements in hmm. that they'll look at and go, well, you know, I don't match up with all of those, so I can't apply, you know, I shouldn't apply for this job. You want to be, as an employer, as an interviewer, you want to be the one to make that decision. Okay. So encourage good people to apply. You know, make sure that you're getting their attention, that you know what they can do to make an impact, what you can do for their career. You offer professional development. You know, how important is that to your culture? You know, how much, how much do you promote from within? But the big thing I think is to, to communicate why a person's work is going to be meaningful. Mm. People want to do things that make an impact and then have meaning. Yeah, that makes total sense. So one of the other things you talk about uh, in your chapter is falling victim to a, to the rock star syndrome that you call it. Talk to us about that and first of all, tell us what it is and then what the risks are around it. Okay. Rock star syndrome is when you, I think you over screen people. You, okay. you have, well, rock stars are people who are the best of the best. They're in high demand. And, if, and, and, and so the market for those people are very competitive. If you have a long list of requirements and you only want to interview people who are ready to, to be A players from day one, then you're probably, or you could be pricing yourselves out of the market. And I'm not suggesting, well, you could be pricing yourself out of the market because the demand for those people is very competitive. They know it and they know it's gonna take more money to entice them to come on board. And that's not to say that you shouldn't go after high quality people. It, it makes sense, I think, to know what your, your must haves are and look for people who have the ability to grow and become A players in that particular role. Maybe they've, they've done an exceptional job in a role that's very similar. Okay. but not quite at the level that you're looking for. Those are the kind of people that where you can really make a difference in their careers by giving them an opportunity and doing things to nurture them and help them succeed. So I'm going to throw you a little bit of a curveball because we didn't talk about this before, but along these same lines, one of the things that, that uh, I get really frustrated about when I talk to organizations and I, I run into this probably once every two or three months is an organization saying, you know, we've got this position that we're going to hire for 
and here are the 57 different requirements for what we're looking for. And it, it always is sort of that, you know, rock star, what I call kind of a purple unicorn, right? It just may not exist even. And, and they've got this long laundry list and they're scoring candidates against it. And then I find out, oh, well, you know, we've set the salary expectation for this position at say 38 or $40,000. And I think I'm not sure that someone can get a, a studio apartment in your market for that rate let alone could you hire somebody with all the qualifications that you're looking for. And it feels to me like this just continues to happen in our sector. And I feel like that's part of what perpetuates the rapid turnover cycle. Can you react to that? Yeah, it happens not just in the nonprofit sector, but in the commercial sector as well. Okay. Okay. Yeah. It's, it's something that, that is incredibly frustrating when you look at it from the outside. I think one of the big problems is that um, if you're a manager trying to hire somebody for your team, making a mistake in that hire is very visible. So hiring managers tend to be, in some cases, overly risk averse. Mm. And they want to hire the best, you know, they only want to hire the perfect candidate. And they miss out on other people who could be really good. Hmm. And then as you were just describing, they price the job way too low because what they're looking for relative to how that job is priced in the market is unrealistic. Yeah. Does that make sense? It does make sense. It's, uh, it's sad and it's, it's unfortunate because I think there's so many great people who, you know, who end up leaving an organization that they might be really passionate about because there's from day one, there's this disconnect between what the organization wanted and what they were willing to pay for and, and the candidate that they got. I don't know how to fix it, but it is frustrating. Yeah. And there are lots of reasons for turnover. Sure. And, yeah. Good and point. you know, there, there are things that I have uh, in my contributions to the book that address that as well from the talent management side, but all of it comes together to, but you know, both the the way you recruit and the way you manage people combine to create an experience for a candidate and then employee that influences how they look at your organization. And there are a lot of things during the course of all that that can that can have an impact on turnover. Yeah, fair point. So one of the other things you talk about, and I'm glad you do because I think I think it's under discussed and and it often feels kind of brushed under the rug in organizations is the idea of not addressing compensation early in the process right so talk to us about the pitfalls of that and then also coach us a little bit on how hiring managers can get better at doing that with without having a, an uncomfortable conversation right the people who are listening to this podcast i would ask them how many times have you gone through multiple interviews with a candidate, not talked about compensation, decided they were the right person for the job, made them an offer, and they turned it down because it paid less than what they were currently making or what they had been making. That's a total waste of time. Mm -hmm. So if you don't talk about compensation in some way early on in the process, you could be spinning your wheels. Now that's not to say that you should you should give away your full range, your full salary range up front. But 
you need to get some sense at least of where the candidate, what the candidate is thinking they're worth in the marketplace before you go too far in the interview process. So you might, you might ask a question like, so let's say you're, you're, you're wrapping up an interview and you like the person you've been talking with, but you might say, so Andrew, before we go any further, let's make sure we're at least in the right ballpark on money because we don't want to waste each other's time. If, if you and I go through this process and we both agree that, that this makes sense, that it makes sense for you to come on board here, give me a sense of what you think a fair salary would be for that. And I'm not asking to give me the number that you'd want me to offer you, but just give me a sense of what you think is right for this role and for you. In, in thinking about that, are you suggesting that that is a conversation that should be had sort of in the first interview? Yeah, I think at the end of the first interview, it's appropriate to have that conversation. Okay. Now, there's another factor that I think is important these days. It's become important because in some states, you are required to reveal a compensation range for hmm. a job that you're posting. Okay. Bef but, and it's, those new laws are designed to reduce gender disparity in salaries. Okay. Like California, I think Massachusetts, that's a law as well. I don't know how much it's enforced. I don't, I don't know for sure where else it's an issue, but that's something. So that, that kind of takes away the need sure. for making sure that you address it. But even so, I think it's important if you're in a state where that's required, I think it's important to confirm that that salary range, if they were to be offered the job, would would be one in which is one that would be acceptable to the candidate. Yeah, that's a good point. So let me ask you this. When when you have those conversations, do you focus specifically on a salary number or do you do you tend to recommend addressing kind of the total comp at that point? Oh yeah, that's a great that's a great point. Uh, because especially on the health insurance side of things, there can be health insurance can make a huge impact on how much the candidate, how much the employee is really earning after everything's taken out of their pay. And some, um, a lot of nonprofits will pay a very high percentage of those health insurance premiums as opposed to the corporate side, which tends to be very low. Hmm. That's interesting. I have some fundraising agency clients that pay 100%. Uh, I work for one of those. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so you know how much of a family. I think that was even a part of the conversation we had it, when it you were the job. <laughs> it, was, it was a huge point in the decision. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so do you want to address that? You know, it's sort of part of the selling process. I, I don't think you want to get too much into benefits up front. I think it's all you're trying to do early on is ballpark things. Okay. Good. So if you're at least, what I say to people is I want to make sure we're at least in the right ballpark. Later on, or that we're at least in the right church. Later on, we'll figure out if we've got the right pew. Gotcha. Okay. So sort of on that same topic, uh, at least around compensation, you also talk about the risk of avoiding discussion of counteroffers. Tell us about that. I, I think I know where you're going with that, but give us a little context for that. Okay. Counteroffers are, are one of the most painful things you could ever encounter 
during uh, during the recruiting process because you've invested tons of time with a candidate, you've established a relationship, you've made an offer, and then they go back to their employer and you find out that they were only using you to get a better deal from the organization or the company that they were working for. Or that the company came back and said, well, we didn't realize that this was a big problem for you here, you know, that you were unhappy with this or that you wanted more of that in your job. Oh, we can fix that. Don't leave. Here, I'll give you an extra five or $10,000 and we'll give you a promotion. Well, you just wasted all kinds of time interviewing that person. Now you've got a vacancy that's been open for, I don't know, a few, a few weeks or a few months that's going to be open for another few more weeks or months until you can find another candidate and get them all the way through the interview process. So it's, it's a really costly thing to ignore. And yes. yeah, I mean, it's, it, have you had that happen? Happened to, to me, happened to me last year. So I, uh, it's a fresh enough wound that I totally resonate with what you're saying. And I wish that I had read your chapter before, uh, <laughs> before I went into that recruiting process with that particular candidate. So, well, um, yeah. Maybe if I had been a little quicker in getting my material to you. <laughs> I'm not judging. I'm just saying. <laughs> <laughs> I know I was a little late, but you don't have to. You know, it's just like a, like a subtle dig or something, Andrew. <laughs> it was not meant to be that. Not at all. <laughs> <laughs> I know it was. But, you know. So how do you, how do you, uh, is that another one of those conversations you have early on in the interview yeah. process or where, where does it fit best? Yeah, you, you do it very early on. You want to do it. It's something you could do at the end of your first interview with the candidate. It's something you can do uh, in between the first and the second in a phone conversation. Okay. And the way that looks is you might ask, so tell me about why you want to leave where you are. Okay. That makes sense. If you... Well, have you asked your employer to address those issues for you? Not yet? Oh, well, you know what? Before we go any further, why don't you go back and make sure that before we invest a lot of time in all this, that you've asked for what you want, okay? Now, a lot of times people will come back and say, oh, I know they're not gonna give it to me because X, Y, and Z, and that might be true. You kind of have to judge that from the context of the conversation. But sometimes people will say, well, um, okay, I'll go back and check, or I don't want to ask for that. I mean, you, you got to look for the red flags, and sometimes the red flags are in places that people, that are in the things that people don't want to talk about. Hmm. So you sort of have to listen for what people aren't saying as opposed to what they are saying. Okay. Because their interest is in moving forward in the interview process. Obviously, your interest is in making sure that you don't waste time with somebody who's going to jilt you at the end. So, you know, you've got to ask those questions. You've got to find out, are they interviewing anywhere else right now? How far into the interview process are they with those other prospects? Now, have they had a second or a third interview already? How far, are, how far away are they from an offer? Those are all things that you need to know about before you invest a whole lot of time because then you can find out whether or not 
either somebody is serious or will just wind up or, or has a high potential of wasting your time at the end. I mean, I've had lots of situations where people have said to me, well, yeah, I'm, I'm, I've been interviewing, but I haven't been past the first interview yet. And then a week later, they've got an offer. <laughs> so you can't know 100% of the time, but a lot of times you can sort of suss out what's going on in somebody's world and how serious they really are and whether or not they're going to use you to leverage a better deal somewhere else. Great. That makes good sense. So the, the last question I want to ask for you, because we're just about out of time, but I think it's a, a really interesting one as well. You talk about the risk of having an inefficient process. Mm-hmm. Talk to us a little bit about why that's risky and how, how we should approach it differently. An inefficient, and so many people don't pay attention to this, and it drives me up the wall when I'm working with a company that takes forever to interview people. This goes back to hiring managers being very risk-averse. Okay. When you're risk-averse, you tend to over-screen. You tend to get too many people involved in the interview process because you don't want to be the one to make the decision all by yourself about somebody who could wind up not working out real well. Yep. So, and and the risks, the, the downsides of doing that are, first of all, in a highly competitive talent market, if you're taking a long time to get somebody through your interview process, they'll go work somewhere else if they're, you know, once they cut, even if they're a passive candidate, even if once they start interviewing you, they're going to start thinking, well, I wonder what else is going on out there. You know, I don't want to put all my eggs in one basket. And if they're really good, someone else is going to scoop them up while you're being overly deliberative. Hmm. You have to be careful of that. That will eventually, I think, have an impact on the quality of the people you hire because the best people will get snapped out from under. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And you'll wind up having jobs open longer which has an impact and it creates, well, it can impact your, your brand, your recruiting brand, because you begin to be known as an organization that is not decisive. Yeah. That is slow to make decisions and good people, talented people who want to advance their careers. They want to work places where, People are moving where they're, you know, they, they, they want to make things happen. Absolutely, yeah. And if that's not what you're projecting in the interview process, then they'll go somewhere else where they can find that. So is there, uh, like, would you recommend a specific time frame from the time that you start recruiting for a position to the time that you should be prepared to make a decision? Or is it a, is it a number of interviews? I mean, what... What's best case scenario for most organizations? Yeah, well, there, there, are a number of fact, there are a number of factors that come into play with that. The level of the job is one. The size of the company is another. But the size of the organization, how many people are involved, um, how many people that prospective employee will be interacting with through the course of their work. So it's hard to give. There's, there's no hard and fast rule to that. But what I would say people can focus on that people should think about is what's the gap in time between each interview? 
Hmm. How okay. long does it take me to get back to the candidate after the interview? Hmm. 48 hours. You can't get back to somebody in 48 hours. You can't make a quick decision on anything, in my view. Yeah, and that, that makes a lot of sense. A little harsh, but when you're recruiting, you have to take into account all the things we've been talking about here. If You've got to be decisive. You've got to let people know, uh, you know, it don't make people think, well, I'm not going to give them an answer until I've talked to 10 other people. If you really know what you're looking for, you'll know it when you find it and you won't need to talk to 10 people. You'll interview three or four or five, and then you'll be able to respond more quickly. But more specifically to your question, respond quickly to candidates. Don't take a lot of time between interviews. No more than seven working dates, let's say. Okay. Now, obviously, schedules play a role in that, and sometimes it can take longer to, uh, to schedule that next step. But some companies just don't make it a priority to move things along quickly when they're interviewing. And, and it's just as important with talent to, to make it as big a priority, as high a priority as other things in your business, if not higher. Yeah, for sure. That's a great point too about kind of staying engaged in the process because, you know, as I was reading it and thinking about the context, I was thinking like start to finish, how long should it take? But the idea of like, okay, don't even let, don't even let it slip between interviews makes right. so much sense. I mean, if we tie it back to sort of fundraising, you know, the, the time between say solicitations for a donor still needs to be, you know, still needs to include other touch points and engagement so that they stay connected to the organization. Right. And this, I mean, it's, it's a very similar correlation, I think. Yeah, you know, and another thing, and this isn't something you've asked me specifically or I address in, in chapters. As a hiring manager, if you're talking with good people that you don't wind up hiring but might be a, bit, a good fit for something else down the road, you want to keep in touch with them just like as a, you know, as a major gift officer, you want to keep in touch with people maybe aren't giving you money now, but have the potential to do it later. Absolutely. Yeah. And if you, uh, if you, that talent pool. you give them a bad experience and, and, you know, sort of make things drag out, uh, at least I as a candidate wouldn't want to have a conversation with you after that. Right. And it's the same thing with donors. Yeah, for sure. Well, man, Jeff, this is a, this is a ton for us to think about and it's great context, great insights. And hopefully, you know, organizations can up their game in talent recruitment and, and management by learning from, from you and your work. Just for, for our listeners, in the show notes, you'll be able to also, uh, there'll be a link for you to download Jeff's chapter from 101 Biggest Mistakes so you can get the entire chapter, uh, no cost, uh, in the show notes. Jeff, how can folks get in touch with you if they want to talk with you about recruitment or either uh, hiring you to recruit for their company or, or reaching out to you as a candidate? Well, they're welcome to give me a call at the office with and that number, which I assume will be in the show notes. Uh, is 216-591-0600. They can email me at jeff at rothmantalent.com. And I'm available not just to work on a search, but also if someone has a question about their own internal recruiting process, if they want to get my thoughts on that, any insight I have, anything, any issues they're running into that they want try to address and get my take on, I'm always happy to take that kind of a call. 
Awesome. Cool. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for your insights. I uh, really appreciate you. It's been my pleasure and, and best of luck to you and continued success at Newport. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Rainmaker Fundraising Podcast, brought to you exclusively by Newport One. Newport One can make a difference in your fundraising so that you can change the world. You can always reach us at podcast at newportone.com. Please take a moment to rate this episode on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform. When you rate this episode, it will help more nonprofit leaders just like you to help find us and get the information that they need to raise more funds for their organization. Thanks again for listening today.